right. Surprised to see so many people here. Thought you all would miss it because of the time change, but glad you're here this morning. So we're in Romans 8, and we're nearing the end this week and next week, but uh, we got a really beautiful passage today. So if you want to open to that or turn on your apps, Romans 8, 26 to 30. Romans 8, 26 to 30. And while you're going there, I want to share, frankly, a heartbreaking story of suffering. It's Natasha's story. Natasha and her husband longed for a child and finally conceive after five years of trying. They learned their child as a girl and decided to name her after Natasha's mother, who died when Natasha was an infant. Throughout the pregnancy, they read every book on what to expect and prepared a dream nursery complete with initials on the wall and large decorative letters. Everything was set. But their daughter is born dead. Not knowing how to deal with the pain, their marriage quickly deteriorates. The questions that flood their minds either trigger conversations so upsetting that the volatility tears them apart or, or conversations so safe that their aloofness only adds to the emotional drift. Their marriage silently suffocates. The husband begins to have an affair at work. He finds life in conversations with a co-worker that have been so long absent from his marriage that he's convinced himself they never existed. When Natasha finds some questionable emails, he lashes out, blames her, leaves, and promptly files for divorce. Within a year, he is remarried and has a child, a little girl. Natasha's dream life is being lived by another woman. Then as she drives home from her part-time job as a waitress that supplements her full-time job as a teacher's aide, Natasha is in a car accident. Not only was the car totaled, something she could not afford, but she also crushed two vertebrae in her lower back. This requires surgery. More money she doesn't have to fuse the vertebrae together. For the rest of her life, she'll experience limited mobility, chronic pain, and be labeled disabled. Now the, the cry of an infant, the sight of a child, the age her daughter would be, the sound of squealing tires, or the possibility of running into her ex-husband in a store are all triggers of intense anxiety and despair. She lives with a hyper-vigilant sense that something catastrophic is about to happen. She never feels safe. Peace and hope, words that once had beautiful biblical meanings for her, have become the equivalent of words like unicorn and leprechaun. She knows what they mean, and she knows also that they don't exist. People who believe in peace and hope seem blissfully naive. She no longer has that privilege. What, should, what could I have done to deserve all this, she asks herself. She feels a heavy load of shame. She longs to figure out how she has sinned so she can repent. Perhaps then God would forgive her and remove this burden. At times she's relieved when she sins, hoping the sincerity of her repentance will work this time and help her life get better. Other times she's angry because she feels condemned by God. A, a few people have reassured her with Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But while they can refute the words with which she articulates her emotions, this truth doesn't seem to touch the place where God feels so painfully absent. Is she abandoned by God? Rejected? Cursed? Does it matter? Does she care anymore? But Romans 8.1 is more bearable than Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Or it's slightly kinder sequels in Scripture. When friends try to comfort her with these passages, she knows that they, they simply do not understand. Sometimes she gets angry. Other times she pities their simplicity. Other times she envies their innocence. Isolation becomes her form of self, self-protection. It works for a while because people can't scrape her wounds with their truths, but the isolation from people becomes emotional insulation and keeps the feelings of being unknown, unloved, and confused painfully hot in her soul. Now that she's drifted from church, her only contact with Christian teaching is the material her friends retweet or post on Facebook. Periodically, she sees some version of, we should be more bothered by our sin than our suffering, or God won't protect us from anything that will make us more like Jesus. These statements only solidify her view of God as uncaring, even cruel. In the midst of her pain, physical, emotional, and spiritual, the emptiness drives her to talk to you. She says she doesn't expect you to fix anything. Honestly, she'd be happy if you just didn't make things any worse. She shares her story, looks you in the eye, and for a brief moment, expects some hope, but then sighs. Her gaze settles back to the floor. What do you do next? What do you say? Which way is hope from here? Brad Hambrick wrote this story, and I I don't know if it's actually a true story, but he wrote an article called Making Peace with Romans 8.28. And later on, in talking about the passage we have this morning, Romans 8.26 to 30, he says this. He says, as with any passage, context is extremely important. If we allow Romans 8.28 to roam around by itself, it can be like a stray dog that looks friendly, but snarls and bites when you get too close. But in its context, we find the compassionate, patient approach we would hope for from the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And that's what I want to show you today. Romans 8.28 is probably one of the most abused verses in the Bible because it's ripped out of its context. But in its context, there's so much comfort and so much hope and so much life. And I want to show you that today. So if we'll, you'll rewind a little bit. If you look at Scripture, if you look at Romans 8, 17, a couple weeks ago, I had that pesky little line at the end, which said, provided you suffer with him. And this introduced the theme of suffering into Romans 8. But it doesn't just leave us with this cold statement. No, it continues. And last week, Jared Cole did a great job showing us the hope amidst the suffering. In in verses 18 to 25, particularly verse 18 and 25, we see that we have a future hope. For those who are in Christ, we have a future hope of glory, of heaven, of perfection with Jesus forever that helps us in our suffering. 
But now we see in our passage, if you look at it, the first word, verse 26, is likewise. Likewise. Paul's saying, hey, just like the future hope of glory helps you in your suffering, likewise, what I'm about to say is going to help you in your suffering. What he's about to say essentially is that the Holy Spirit helps us in our suffering and in our weakness. So I want you to look at this passage, Romans 8, 26 to 30, through the lens of suffering, because I, I believe that it was written for sufferers in particular. So let's read it together with that lens. Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what I want to invite you to do this morning when it comes to suffering. I want you to take your scales that you have in your mind that we so often have in our mind, these scales of comparison of, wow, this person's suffering is way worse than mine right now, or, or my suffering is way worse than theirs right now, and I just want you to throw those scales in the trash. Because there's nothing good and biblical about that. I want us to redefine suffering. When it says suffering in this passage, and, and as I'm talking this morning, referring to suffering, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about any and all hardship and trouble. Any of it, all of it. It's not just the really hard, quote unquote, stuff, the super hard stuff. How do you judge that? I mean, there's no, there's no classes of suffering. It's all hard. Hardship is hard. So throw away your scales. See, if my friend is, is dying of cancer, it could be just as hard as your conflict with your spouse right now. It all hits us a little bit different at different points. So it's not helpful to compare. And not to be depressing, but we all experience suffering every day. We all feel the ache of a world that is, is consumed by sin. That is, that is just messed up, as we saw in the previous passage, that's longing for glory, that's longing for perfection, just like we are as well. But we live in that world. I mean, even today, I stubbed my toe <laughs> on a corner. You'd be like, oh, that's silly, that's whatever. No, it, it actually hurt in that moment pretty good. See, we all experience it more often than you might think. So let's throw away our scales. And, and here's the main point of this passage here th this morning. It's basically saying this. The Holy Spirit meets us in our suffering and our weakness with his strength. He meets us. He meets us. He doesn't bash us over the head with truth. He puts an arm around us and meets us in our weakness and our suffering with his strength when we don't have it. 
So let me show you that in the passage. Look at verse 26. Here's, here's our weak prayer and suffering. Verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we are. This is us in prayer. When, when life is hard, we're like, what do I pray, God? What do I pray? I, I think of growing up, my cousin and I um, had this really weird, sick and twisted, messed up game that we played where we, I would just jump out from, from nowhere and punch him in the gut as hard as I could, okay? And then he would, he would do the same. He wouldn't do it right away. You know, he'd wait a while, and then just out of nowhere, he'd be, he'd be behind here, and I'd be walking by, he'd go, bam! And I, I remember, it's, you know, it's, it's boys. What do, what do you do, you know? Um, but but uh, one time, I remember, he got me so good, I, I was doubled up, and I was on the floor, and I, I was trying to talk and, like, yell at him or something, and I, I couldn't, you know, when you have the wind knocked out of you, you're just like, and that, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happened. Weird game, I know, I know. But here's what I'm trying to say. We all, we all know those times, we've all experienced those times when life just, just punches us in the gut and it leaves us speechless. Sometimes the only thing we can get out in prayer is a word, Jesus, help or just a, ah, or, or maybe just nothing. Because it's so hard and weighty that we just, we don't know what to say. That's prayer often during suffering. And that's what this verse is saying. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but he meets us. He's so tender. He meets us with his powerful prayer. End of verse 26. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? These groanings are talking about the Spirit's empathy. He meets us in our prayer with empathy. He's like, you, you don't know what to pray? I understand. And I, and I hear you. I hear even your inaudible words. And this is really tough. Pastor Warren Wearsby said, Today, the Holy Spirit groans with us and feels the burdens of our weaknesses and suffering. He feels it with us. You know, those empathizing sighs of understanding when someone's sharing something with you and you just go, oh, wow. Whew. You know, where you're just, not even words sometimes, and you're just relating, oh, mm, wow. That's tough. See, that's the Spirit. It's not just the Spirit, it's Jesus. See, Jesus understands. Jesus understands and he empathizes with us through the Holy Spirit's groaning and empathy. See, he gets it, he understands, he lived it too. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what these, these verses are saying? Leave that up for a sec. You know what these verses are saying? Here's what they're not saying. It's not Jesus going, hey, I died on the cross. My suffering's worse than yours. No, that's, that's not Jesus. It's not Jesus going, hey, be quiet about your suffering. I died on a cross. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Quite the opposite. He's saying, hey, I see what you're going through. And I've been there too. 
He meets us in our suffering. Also, with our prayer life, when we're suffering, we come with our, our weak prayer and we're like, how do I even pray? How do I pray with, with something that's in line with your will, God? I'm incredibly grateful that, that you empathize and relate to my trouble, Holy Spirit, but how do I even go about praying something that's God-honoring? Especially in the middle of this thing. Sometimes we're so confused, we're so afraid, our thoughts are so hazy that, that even the Lord's prayer, your will be done, we, we just can't say it. Even though our, our heart of hearts believes that, Right? But he meets us. He meets us with his powerful prayer. And in verse 27, it says, He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. For is the key word. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We're not, we're not quite sure if we're going to have the right words or whatever. And he's like, whatever. I'm going to pray for you. His intercession, intercession is, is this word in the Bible. It just means praying on behalf of somebody else. He meets us in our prayer with his perfect prayer. You don't know what to pray right now? He's like, it's, it's all good. I got you covered. Warren Wearsby said, but the spirit does, does more than groan. He prays for us in our groaning so that we might be led into the will of God. That's it. That's what we're talking about here in verse 27. He does the heavy lifting. He prays on our behalf, intercession. We, we may be crying, crying out, why God? What are you doing? But the Holy Spirit meets us in that with his powerful prayer and leads us in to the will of God. But it's often a process. He meets us in our weakness, in prayer and suffering and gets us from Psalm 13, 1 to Psalm 13, 5. You see David when he's praying at the beginning of this psalm, as you see often David in the psalms doing, he's crying out to God. He's going, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But by verse five, he's, he's saying, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This makes it look like David got there like that. I don't think so. Might have been days, months. Rarely does it happen overnight. You see, Natasha, in the story I shared at the beginning, she needed permission to hang out in Psalm 13.1 for a while, I think. She needed gentle reminders of what we've already seen in verse 26 and 27, that the Holy Spirit empathizes with her and is praying on her behalf. She needs that. Romans 8, 27 is so great because the Holy Spirit takes up our burden and our pain and he intercedes for us. He prays us through the process. He doesn't beat us over the head with God's will. Here's God's will. No, he does it for us. And so I want to challenge you, I want to challenge us to help others who are hurting like the Holy Spirit does. Lead with empathy, empathize with them, go, wow, that's tough. Guys, we want to fix it, right? Fight that urge. 
It's not just guys, lots of us. We just, we want to fix it. Empathize with them. Pray with them. Intercede for them when they can't. Don't be so quick to offer platitudes like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Platitude, by the way, funny sounding word, but uh, I've used it lately and I realized when I was going to say it this morning that I didn't know what it actually meant. So uh, here's what it means. It's, it's, a, it's a flat, dull, or trite remark, especially one uttered as if it were fresh or profound. Flat, dull, trite. It's an uncaring remark. Insensitive. Let's follow the Holy Spirit's example. You see, God is a gentleman. He doesn't slap platitudes at us when we're suffering. All things for good, all things for good. No, he empathizes. He feels it with us. He relates. He, he's going, I, I know. And then he prays with us and for us while our hearts catch up with our head. You know what I'm talking about? When, while, while you know what is true, you don't feel like it's true. And he prays us through that process. Now, having, having said all that, the rest of my message and, and the rest of this passage could feel like I'm just throwing platitudes at sufferers. But here's the thing. There's still deep, really helpful truths for suffering in verses 28, 29, and 30. And it would be wrong for me not to share those with you today. But I just challenge you. I challenge myself. I challenge all of us. Just be gentle and careful not to jump to these too quickly. And especially right away. So verse 28. Our weak perspective here. And we we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We hear that not from our weak perspective in suffering go, yeah, I do love God. I know that's the condition here for those who love God. I love God. I definitely love you, God. That's not the issue. But is this actually good? It doesn't seem like all things, every little thing is for good, especially the annoying, hard, confusing things. Often in our weakness, we're just like, I, God, I, I don't get it. I love you. I know you're good. But what is up with that? But he meets us with his powerful perspective. See, it's about perspective, Right? Romans 8, 28 is all about perspective. See, his powerful perspective goes, yes, this this is actually good. It's for my good. God is saying it's for my good, which is for your good. He's saying, "If if you saw things from my perspective, you'd see how good this is. See, God's perspective is one that's outside of time. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around that. We're confined to time. He's outside of time. So he sees what's ultimately good. God's perspective is also, he, he has priorities that are usually very different from ours. His highest priority is his honor and his glory, not Matt's. See, our weak minds think that we know what's good and we know what's best, but we totally lack perspective. But God's good is, is our good. God's good is ultimately for our own good as well. But don't get this mixed up. What we define as good, if we're honest, usually is selfish and short-sighted. 
God's good is perfect and calculated. Let's imagine for a second, um, someone walks in the back door. Let's say they walk in the door today, they come in late, and they're looking for a seat. Let's say they have a family of six, so they need one of these big rows. And they look, and they look around, and let's say they're like the high, height of Josh, so they can't see over the, the sound bar there. So, uh, I love you, Josh. And uh, all they see is this open seat right here. They're like, well, I guess, you know, we'll be that family. Walks up while everyone's worshiping in front. No offense if that's been you. I've been there, done that. But let's, let's pretend that back seat over there was wide open, but they just didn't see it. See, it would have been a lot easier, more comfortable for everyone, including them, to just slide right into the back seat. But what they lacked was perspective. But from my perspective up here, I'd be like, hey, over there, you know. They'd be like, whatever. It's all full over there. I'm go- coming up here. See, God has my view of life. As my view of the sanctuary, he sees what the actual best and good thing is. We need to lean into and trust his perspective and goodness, even when, especially when we can't see it. It's like we sang earlier, even when I can't see it, you're working. His powerful perspective. Next, we, we see the plan. Our plan is often very weak and his is, is always very strong. So we've jumped down to verse 30. We'll come back to 29. It says, and, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now let me just address the elephant word in the room quickly and move on. So in verse 29, it also says the word predestined. And in 29, it even says foreknew. Now, here's my real quick summarization of this. Somehow in the mystery of God, he knew beforehand who would be saved. That's what it means to foreknow or predestined. And at the same time, we had a free choice to believe in, to trust him, to follow him. And I'm not going to try to make sense of a centuries-old debate in five seconds. But that's not actually the point of this scripture. Don't stumble over these words. Okay, context. What is Paul actually saying? He's saying, hey, God has a purpose and a plan for hardship. And that should actually bring us comfort and joy even in the midst of it. So our weak plan, though, is verse 30. Verse 30, notice it leaves out anything about sanctification, anything about um, uh, hardship. It's just talking about the benefits we get from being saved, from what Jesus did on the cross. And we just go, in the middle of our suffering, we go, save me, God. And what we usually mean is save me from this particular pain now. And God goes, I, I'm going to do you one better. Verse 30, I, I already chose you. I predestined you to be saved. I, I, I wooed you. I called you to believe in me to be saved. I saved you from sin and gave, gave you Jesus' perfect spotless record, justified, just as if you never sinned. And I'm going to save you one day from all of this pain, glorified. My plan is not your plan. 
Your temporary, immediate pain is not what you need saved from most right now. Sin, death, and the devil are your greatest enemies, not pain. And I'm saving you from those. And one day, all of that pain and evil will be gone. No more tears. And it's going to be way better than this small deliverance that you want right now. Not that he doesn't do that. Not that I don't do that. But sometimes he doesn't. Usually he doesn't in the timing we want. But on top of that, there's one more enemy you need desperate saving from. And that's ourselves. The flesh, the sinful nature that Paul's been talking about throughout Romans. And so go back to verse 29. Here's his powerful plan. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, his powerful plan isn't just to save us. It's to save us and to change us through that process. To make us more like Jesus. See, the kind of saving that you need immediately is actually from your sinful self most of the time. Our weak plan is this immediate ease and comfort, but his powerful plan is a gradual change, a molding. Making us more into the likeness of Jesus. And and the more he changes us into Christ's likeness, the more peace and joy we can actually be free to experience in suffering. Why? Because when we start to embrace, often with tears, and embrace it with honesty, just like the psalmist do, like David does, as we're just gut honest with God, which we can and should be, especially in suffering, but at all times, pour out our hearts to him. When we start to embrace with tears and honesty God's master plan, as hard as it is, even when we don't see it, we don't, we don't understand the plan, we don't get it, we can trust that he's, he's bringing beauty out of those ashes. And the more we embrace instead of run away or, or deny suffering in our lives, the more we can truly live. My mentor, Steve Jones, um, helped me realize uh, a couple weeks ago that I was feeling rather afraid. Um, I don't think I even knew that. (laughs) Shows you how in touch with my feelings I was. But yeah, I've just felt afraid a lot. I'm sure none of you can relate to that this year. No, I'm sure, I'm sure all of us can to some degree, right? I mean, I, I've been afraid to make decisions, afraid of the unknown, what's going to happen. Afraid of failure. Afraid of situations with people. Afraid of myself. What am I going to say and do in this situation? And you know What was so great is Steve came alongside me, much like the Spirit does. And he said, you know what, Matt? It's normal to feel things. It's normal to feel afraid in the circumstances you're in right now. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That alone was really, really mind-blowing to me. There's nothing wrong with feeling afraid, but... 
He's like, you can let your fear steal life from you and, and let it turn into greater worry and anxiety and what ifs and panic. Or, or you can let that fear, by the power of the Holy Spirit, create a greater trust in Jesus. You're afraid to do this. You're afraid to do that. Go to him and go, I'm afraid. I need you to give me courage and give me strength because otherwise I'm going to be a wimp. And as I've done that, and I'm still certainly battling with that, it's caused greater trust in Jesus and less focus on me. Now now I'm watching God do some stuff in me and through me and and, and in situations. It's like, oh, wow, okay, yep, cool, that was not me. Still rather afraid. So I want to share with you a prayer that's really helped me trust God with my emotions and particularly my fear in the midst of suffering. And I want to do something that, uh, well, I did a lot growing up. Small Baptist Church, a congregational reading. Okay, now many of you probably heard the beginning of this prayer. It's the serenity prayer, but I bet most of you haven't heard the end of it. Let these words sink in as we read them together, okay? You guys know what congregational prayer is? I know don't often have a lot of engagement, so you have to act, you can't leave me hanging, okay? We're all actually going to read this out loud together. All right, here we go. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. So that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the Holy Spirit who meets us in our pain. Help us as we experience hardship to take it, as this prayer said, as a pathway to peace. Help us to take this sinful world and circumstances that we're in as it is, not as we would want it. Thank you that you're going to make all things right someday, God. I pray that as we do this, as we humbly and honestly go about dealing with suffering in our lives and in the lives of others, that we would just cling to you and trust you more through it. And as we do that, we would experience more and more joy, even as tears are flowing down our face. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.